Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Chris Cottonor, executive producer of Deep State Radio. We are incredibly grateful for the support of our members. February is Member Appreciation Month, and to celebrate, we're offering membership to new members for $1 for the first month or $50 per year. Members receive access to bonus content, member-only briefings delivered on Wednesdays and Fridays, access to our member Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, and much more. We'll also be calling out new members and those who have been supporting us through the years in our upcoming shows. To become a member, which goes a long way to supporting our work, please visit bit.ly slash dsrmember. Use code FEB2022 at checkout. That's bit.ly slash dsrmember and use code FEB2022 at checkout. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Joining us from Washington, D.C., we have of course, Corey Shockey of the American Enterprise Institute. How are you, Corey? I'm exceedingly well. Thank you, David. Excellent. And also in that general vicinity, but not in Washington, I can tell from her background, is Rosa Brooks of Georgetown Law School. How are you, Rosa? I'm very well, David. Well, that's excellent. And we are also joined today by Constance Stelzenmuller, who's the inaugural holder of the Fritz Stern Chair on Germany and Transatlantic Relations in the Center on the United States and Europe at the Brookings Institution, who is joining us from München, correct? Yes, sir. Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, we are all going to undertake one of those things that is, I guess, par for the course in circumstances like these, which is we are going to try to offer uh, thoughtful comments on events that are unfolding as we are Speaking about them, we record these on Tuesday afternoon. And so immediately prior to the podcast, we have been led to believe a number of different things. And we'll talk about some of them, such as Vladimir Putin, you know, saying that he was going to de-escalate, although there's not a lot of evidence of that. Also, Vladimir Putin saying a number of things that did not sound at all conciliatory following a meeting with the German chancellor. The German chancellor getting at least some members of the press kind of stirred up by implying, suggesting that we should somehow formalize the idea that Ukraine not be allowed to join NATO. And I'm going to turn Uh, to you, Constance, in a moment to begin that with the discussion there. Uh, And knowing that at 3.30 this afternoon, which is about an hour and a half from now as we record this, 
the president of the United States is going to speak about Ukraine again. So there's a lot going on. There's also apparently some kind of small cyber attack going on in in Ukraine, targeting a couple of banks and uh, the Ministry of Defense website, uh, denial of service kind of attacks. So there's a lot going on. And and I want to start by saying sort of, where do you think we are in all of this? And you're over there and in Germany right now, Constanz, what are you what are you seeing and hearing? So, yeah, I flew in yesterday uh, ahead of the Munich Security Conference, which to uh, everyone's, including my surprise, is taking place in person, or if, if at a very reduced size. And I was even more surprised to, to hear that I was still invited. I had not counted on that. So I hoofed it over here. And I hoofed it over here the day before Olaf Scholz's first visit to Putin. He went to Kiev before, notably talked to Zelensky and visited the memorial to the Heavenly Hundred of Fallen of the Maidan, which I think was, was well taken in, uh, in Kiev. Yes, he did say that he had asked Zelensky to come up with legislation to fulfill the Minsk Agreement clause that says there need to be some sort of elections in the disputed in the conflict regions of Donbass and Luhansk. That said, there had been negotiations in, in Berlin the week previously in that same format, the Normandy format, where the negotiators left after hours of, of debate saying that they had achieved absolutely nothing. Because essentially the Russians had made maximalist demands that neither the Germans nor the French nor the Ukrainians, the other three parties to the Normandy format and the Minsk agreement could agree on. So it's not clear to me what really, what kind of concessions uh, Zelensky really could have offered. And I suppose we have yet to hear that. Then today in Moscow, Schultz got the same long table treatment as to before him, uh, Emmanuel Macron, the French president, had gotten because he too refused a Russian PCR test. He visited the grave of the unknown soldier outside the Kremlin, and then had a meeting with Putin that ended earlier than expected. So the press conference began earlier after just short of four hours, shorter than the Macron meeting. And I would say the tone of the two was very businesslike, very crisp, uh, no smiles, no first names. Putin did say that he was willing to engage in dialogue on two things, uh, the deployment of intermediate range missiles and on confidence building measures. And he mentioned that there had been troop reductions, to which Schultz said, you know, dialogue is good and we want that. And troop reductions are also good, but there need to be more. And there is no reason, there is no reason for those troops to be there at all. He mentioned violations of human rights in Russia, specifically the closing of the human rights NGO Memorial. He mentioned the infringements of media rights, and he mentioned the incarceration of Alexei Navalny. And he said, and I'll close with that, I don't want to give you too long a, a, a readout. And he said in closing that we both know that there is no talk right now of a membership of, Ukra of, of a Ukrainian membership in NATO. That did not sound to me as though he was suggesting formalizing that. I think what he instead said was quite deftly, and I thought elegantly, saying, you know, it, right, we all know that this is a non-issue. 
which is tantamount to saying we stand by our position of not acknowledging a right to Russia, you know, to ask us to promise that it will never happen. But it is a fact that it is currently not happening, right? And then I thought, so very interestingly, he said, you know, it's not going to happen in my term in office or in yours. And I know yours is going to be longer. I don't know how long it will be, but it's going to end sometime, right? I'm paraphrasing. Basically, what I thought was a quite elegant insult, a two-punch. You know, you're a dictator, but your time will be over sometime too. I have to say, I caught my breath at that. Now, I know that uh, the New York Times reporter, Anton Trajanovsky, whom I know, is reporting from a meeting with the German reporters that suggested a formalization, but I have actually just read the online articles that, that uh, some of those, at least one, one of those reporters whom I also know, wrote about that meeting. It's in tomorrow's edition of the Deutsche Zeitung, and it makes no mention of any kind of formalization. And knowing, knowing the newspaper and the colleague, I think that would have been front, front page news had Charles suggested it in, in, the, in the meeting with German press. So I'm inclined to doubt it, much as I like and respect Anton Trojanos. Sorry, that was a very long intro. No, it was excellent. It was better, in fact, than any of the reports I've heard on any of this from anywhere. Rosa, I, I got the impression as you were signing on that you've been uh, listening in on some briefings on this. What's, what's your take on where we are? Well, yeah, so we were we were both in the same White House briefing uh, a little while ago. And what I kept wondering and, and during the briefing is, in a sense, and, and this came up a little bit, but only only kind of in passing, we're preparing for all kinds of unambiguous actions the Russians could take. But what do we do if their actions remain calculated? to sustain ambiguity for a very long period of time. Because I'm now thinking if I were Vladimir Putin, I'm glad I'm not. But if I were Vladimir Putin, I'd be thinking, okay, I can't invade right now, you know, because the U.S. keeps releasing intelligence that gives away all my plans. And everybody said, don't do it, don't do it. And I keep having to say, I'm not going to do it. So I, I shouldn't do it. But on the other hand, I'm not giving up on this. Um, so I think what I'll do is I will spend, you know, the next few weeks, months, however long it takes, in which, you know, I'll periodically do little things to lower the temperature, but nothing major. You know, I'll move some troops out, but not really the important ones. You know, we'll, we'll make little gestures so we can keep saying, hey, we're, you know, we're talking and the U.S. is going to get bored because that's what the U.S. does. Everybody's going to get bored. There's going to be a new crisis somewhere. Sooner or later, everybody will decide if the situation is stabilized. I will be there with my however many troops still on the borders while the U.S. is distracted by pick your issue has, has come up. And that's the moment that I will choose to come up with a pretext and invade. That's what I would be thinking. And, and I don't know what we do about that, right? Because we have finite resources. We have finite intelligence resources. The, the people who work in the NSC and the Defense Department, the State Department have finite mental bandwidth. There's only so many you know, we've got we've got our top negotiators, our top diplomats, all deeply engaged in this. And there's only so many hours in a day. And, and you know, Putin waits. Putin might be able to wait us out, uh, you know, wait until those people are otherwise occupied. That's what I would do if I were him. I don't know if that's what he will do. I was thinking, uh, are we prepared for that? Are we prepared for that possibility? It is what, if anything, can we do to hedge against it? Interesting. Interesting. I'm, I'm glad Putin is not as smart as you. Have you or... I'm a 
was just thinking I would would take over the world, frankly. I would would have established complete world domination by now. Let's be clear. (laughs) No, no, I'm I'm I I actually am clear on that. Corey, again, same same question. Where do you think we are? I, I should point out the Duma in Russia has also taken some action, you know, sympathetic to the Russian populations of the autonomous territories in eastern Ukraine. And Putin did make a reference to genocide taking place in Ukraine, which is expected to be one of his arguments that he needs to step in. So these are also factors in this. But where where do you think we are? I've never believed the arguments that Putin's a brilliant strategist because he has actually so diminished Russia's longer term prospects with a set of self-serving near term choices. If he's as smart as Rosa, which none of us are, but I hope he's not listening at the moment. I do worry that Putin's best approach at this point is either pulling the trigger and going to war to the destruction of Ukraine and its absorption into an expanded Russian empire, or sustaining the military forces for as long as possible. And parenthetically, oil is $100 a barrel. He can sustain it a fair amount of time. And the longer he's there... The, the higher stays there, the higher it goes, right? <laughs> exactly. So racket. just keep the pot yeah. on a slow boil because it's destroying the economy of Ukraine. You can't fly planes there. You can't insure ships going there. The currency is collapsing. And everybody's paying all the attention in the world to Vladimir Putin, right? He's like Kathy at the beginning of Wuthering Heights, where everyone's standing around shouting at her and she just couldn't be happier. Moreover, if you play for time, you might eventually open up cracks in Western solidarity. And so I don't think he loses much by keeping this at a high state of anxiety. I think he's likelier to end up with something than nothing if he does that. So I hope he wasn't listening to Rosa. But who's Heathcliff? <gasps> oh, arrows in my heart. All right. Um, anyway. Listen to the Kate Bush song. It'll, take, it'll be quicker than reading the book. <laughs> an, ex- an excellent reference, and I strongly recommend everybody to do that as well. I prefer Jane Eyre. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> But Kate Bush never sang a song about Jane Eyre. But in any event, um, so the president is going to speak. And by the time a lot of people have listened to this, they will have heard the president speak. And Stanza, what do you think the president needs to say? That's a trick question, asking the German what the president of the United States should say. I have well, to say, it's, I think a that's leader, so it's, a, it's a leader of NATO. So we're always telling the Germans what to say. So it seems fair. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's not like we never lecture anybody, but I, I think the, the president is probably sort of well advised to say, listen, you know, we to take a very long, generous, but not particularly trustful view 
of today's events and, the, and um, pronouncements coming out of the Kremlin. In other words, politely acknowledge, acknowledge the willingness to dialogue, perhaps politely, as politely ignore the insults from the foreign ministry spokeswoman that accompanied it, say, you know, dialogue would be great. We also think that would be much better for Russia. You know, we don't think that this is good for Russia, but reiterate that the West's fundamental principles are not on the line, are not on offer, that there is absolutely no doubt about this between the White House and European allies, and reiterate the commitment of the entire alliance that there will be severe consequences if Russia walks back on this offer of dialogue and continues aggression. It's really that simple. And the other thing, I will say one thing, though, that I think has been missing in the messaging so far. I do, I do think that the White House has done a very good job in trying to, as they say, dominate the information space, prevent Russia from having the element of surprise, which I think they may have been trying to regain with this announcement of a willingness to enter in dialogue. And that is one, one thing, which I think that we have been, to some degree, falling into the trap that Putin has been laying out for us which is of sort of trying to reel us all back into a sort of 19th century type competition between sort of macho male great power leaders where the strong do as the will and the weak take what they must, right? And I think that we have omitted to call his bluff on that. And we should say, listen, you know, you keep talking about troops and about conversations between leaders, and you talk about uh, rules and agreements, and you sort of wave the fact at us that you are gain, you know, getting a lot of money from the oil and gas price spike and your bank reserves. But you know what? Your country has a civil society too, and your country is interdependent with the rest of the world. It is by no means as autarkic as you would like to have us believe. And your country's best and brightest have been leaving for about a decade now. In fact, they've been leaving in droves and they've been settling mostly in Europe. Berlin is full of them. And there's a reason why they don't want to go back. It's not just their children going to school. It's their parents leaving after them. And we would like to say, use this opportunity to say to Russian civil society that this is not about you and sanctions are not about you. It's about the leadership. And we think that your leadership is depriving you of the chance to have a decent society and a decent you know, national constitution. We hold out the hope for you that you will be able to achieve this sometime. And we are going to try very hard to make sure that our sanctions, if we have to, if we have to impose them, will not, will not damage civil society. I, know, I mean, I know that's going to be hard, but I do think that Western messaging and the president's speech should contain an element of this nature. So similar question. What do you think needs to be done in terms of, it can be the US or it can be Western messaging. I mean, what must be addressed that has yet to be addressed or where should the tone change? Mostly, I think it's fine. I mean, I would actually love to have a discussion with Corey about her Times op-ed, which Corey made the strong argument that it was a mistake as a negotiating tactic for Biden to have declared, we will not have skin in the game in terms of our own troops fighting Russia, no way, no how. 
I'm inclined to think that that was not a mistake because I think while there are, you know, there are risks of, of saying upfront, hey, here's some stuff that we're not going to do. But my own take would be that to the extent that it helped lower the temperature and reduce inadvertent escalation and so on, that it was probably probably the wise move given, you know, given the dangers of any confrontation between superpowers. And I also thought proxy wars between the U.S. and Russia are not not new. Right. And Putin knows Putin knows perfectly well. And Biden knows that Putin knows that even if the U.S. never puts troops on the ground, if there's a war that the U.S. has all kinds of ways of messing with the Russians and aiding the Ukrainians. And that's exactly what would happen. You know, it doesn't that troops, American troops or no American troops isn't necessarily something that makes a difference. So I guess that that's my take on it. You know, that Biden is it's a hard situation, but I think he's calibrated about as well as anyone could, you know, trying to walk that line between saying, hey, here's some stuff we're not going to do, but here's some stuff, no question about it, we're totally willing to do. So I, I think he's basically gotten it right, but I would love to hear what, what the rest of you think, especially Corey, I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on that. Yes, you fairly characterize my judgment, Rosa, and I thank you for bothering to read the article. I do think it's a mistake for the president to reassure the Russians that they don't have to worry about American intervention to fight on the side of the Ukrainians. That doesn't mean we should fight on the side of the Ukrainians. I just think as a point of strategy, it's not a good idea to reassure your adversary that they may be willing to escalate, but we absolutely aren't. I can see the argument that the president first of all, wouldn't be credible threatening to go to war in Ukraine after the abandonment of Afghanistan. But I actually think that's the reason to have tried to reestablish the credibility of American deterrence, because I do think that puts us in a weaker position in terms of allied fears and possible encouragement to adversaries. Two things I would love to hear from the president. Uh, one other mistake, I think. I share the judgment that the Biden administration has handled a hard situation pretty well and done a lot of things right. But in addition to not ruling out the potential risks of force, I also think evacuating the American embassy was a mistake. I can understand why they did it. The fears of a Benghazi type, you know, investigation or not wanting to repeat the mistakes that they made in Afghanistan by not wanting to do anything so you don't make things worse, worse on the Afghan government. But on balance, I actually think it would have been a much better idea to evacuate families and leave America's diplomats in Kiev, which takes me to one of the things I wish the president would say, which is to commend the courage and professionalism of American diplomats who have been doing fantastic work, you know, very often work in war zones and very often work in crises because reminding people that diplomats are very often in danger and are incredibly courageous would be a nice thing to do. A second thing I would like to see the president do, I agree with everything Costanza said in terms of making Putin play a home game as well. 
talk about Alexei Navalny and the new case brought against him and the unfairness of that and that we are assisting Ukraine to try and be a place of the rule of law and limited government. But the second thing I wish the president would do is prepare Americans for the hardships we may be asked to bear, right? That there are things Russia may very well do, cyber attacks, raising the price of oil, trying to destabilize America's friends, trying to deploy Russian troops or missiles into the Western Hemisphere. Just as we got out in front of the information warfare that the Russians were doing, I think it would be wise for the president to prepare Americans for the fact that the Russians will have responses to to the sanctions and other things that we and free societies do. Those are all good points. And I I do encourage everybody to read Corey's op-ed from the Times last week. And uh, I guess I tend to share Rosa's view of it a little bit, but I thought it was a very balanced op-ed and it gave credit the Biden administration for a lot of the positive side of this thing. And, you know, after all, strategic ambiguity is not known in U.S. foreign policy. It is actually the centerpiece of the corollary policy with Taiwan. So it's not consistency can be a problem in foreign policy, too. In any event, this is the point where we take a break so that the people who've been listening to us in the general public can Consider why they haven't become a member yet, and then they can go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership, become a member, and listen to the rest of the podcast when we, we talk about some of the big looming questions about what's next and all of this. So we encourage you to do that. And for the rest of you who are members, stand by. We'll be back in one moment. 